Well, welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm a pastor here. This is fun, right? You like that jazz music? Oh, jazz. It's, it's the music of conversation, which is a great segue. Thanks for bringing that up, Joel. Um, conversations, what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. I promised last year that we'd do a series every summer on how to have better conversations. And the reason that we feel like we need to have better, or I feel like we need to have better conversations, is because I think one of the fundamental issues in our society today is that we are terrible at having meaningful conversation. We're just the worst. Just the worst at it. Uh, And I was reminded of it these last two days. Uh, Last night we went to a wedding, And weddings are great, but you tend to have sort of what they call cocktail conversations. And it's a personal goal of mine to kill cocktail conversations. I I just, it tires me out. And then today I went to my nephew's first birthday. Again, not very meaningful conversation. And it drains me. But now, when I have a substantial, I mean a meaty conversation, conversations is like a nice piece of jazz. I mean, it is life-giving. I am filled to the brim, and I could go, I could move mountains. So, it's one of our goals, one of our pillar goals here at Sedaris, to lead the way back, not just for ourselves, but hopefully for our entire city, lead the way back to better conversations. And one of the ways that we hope to do this is by intentionally teaching and preaching and harping on how to have better conversations. And so I might sound like a broken record player if you stick around long enough. That's a compliment. Because we need to keep asking and challenging ourselves to have better conversations. Last year we did a series on other worldviews besides Christianity. So what we said was, um, one of the reasons why we struggle to have conversation, particularly with people that do do not see the world in the exact same way as we do, is because we get nervous or scared, because we don't understand where they're coming from. So maybe if we did a little of the foundational work to understand where people are starting, where they're coming from, then maybe we'll have better, more meaningful conversations with them. Because as soon as they say something that we don't quite understand, we'll know maybe a little bit more about where they're coming from. So that was last year. You can find that uh, information um, on our website. Or actually, a little sneak peek for all of you who come to church during the summer. Um, thank you for being here. <laughs> uh, but you can download the kind of beta version. We're going to actually be rolling out an app in the fall, but the beta version is available, so you can also listen to the sermons on that. So you just go to the Google uh, Play Store or the Apple Store and, da- and, and, and search Sedaris Church. There's only one of us in the world, so you'll find our app, and you can listen to those sermons. In fact, I just changed the artwork on those sermons so that they're bright, pink, and neon green. So that you can't miss them. Because I think that stuff's really important if you've never sort of studied or heard about other worldviews, other ways of seeing the universe. 
series is called Universe Next Door, if you're looking for it. So that's what we did last year. And this year, we're going to be, I didn't bring it up with me, we're go- but I had a book. We're going to be talking through, uh, it's sort of inspired by this book called Fool's Talk by an author called Oz Guinness. And um, I won't say everything that he says. I might not say it as well as he says. But a lot of what we'll be talking about will be inspired uh, by reading this book. And I've been reading this book on and off for the last six months. And it has uh, inspired me, in a way, for this series. This is our annual Better Conversation series. So that's what we'll be doing. And um, one of the things that we'll see as we go through this, uh, I'm not sure, it'll be five or six week series, uh, as we go through, we'll see, and perhaps most significantly tonight we'll see this, that better conversation, the word better doesn't mean more comfortable or easier necessarily, it just means that it's more meaningful, that there's something, uh, there's something full and real about the conversation. So tonight we'll do two things. I'll sort of introduce the concept of this book, Fool's Talk, and we'll sort of analyze the main thesis of the book, and then I will give you the first key to having, (laughs) or to making the thesis of this book come true. And as you can see here, this is the thesis of his book. He says this, We have lost the art of Christian persuasion, and we must recover it. That's the thesis of the book, and so we'll look at that today. So would you pray with me as we enter into this new series? Father God, thank you for a chance to come together. This is a lot of fun, to come together and jam, if you will, on the topic of better conversation. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that we have community to consider these things. Uh, We thank you that we have this place to meet. We thank you um, that we can come together every week and consider the deep truths of you, God, of your Son, Jesus Christ, and of the gospel of redemptive grace. We pray that our eyes and ears would be open, um, that we would be personally challenged to, to, to move and to act more fully in alignment with your kingdom and your mission in the world. Uh, help us to, to hear what it is you have to say to us tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have lost the art of Christian persuasion and we must recover it. So I'm going to break this thesis down and I'm going to talk about each of the elements, okay? And the first term or phrase that I would like to look at is Christian persuasion. Do you cringe a little bit when you hear that term, Christian persuasion? I don't know what pops into your head, but you might cringe a little bit. What do you picture when you hear that word persuasion? People with bullhorns in the common square at your university, or Christians crusading across Western Europe with the flag of the cross, Maybe the Spanish Inquisition. Or maybe you picture your parents forcing you to go to church against your will. Or in my case, maybe you picture your parents 
forcing you to go to youth group. Used to hate to go to youth group. Used to like to go to big church. And I'd sit there. Sometimes I'd fall asleep. Other times I'd draw. But lots of times I actually enjoyed it. I just really didn't like youth group. Don't know why. But I didn't. Sometimes I was forced to go. But is that what Christian persuasion means? Or do I maybe have a false picture when I hear those words? So stay tuned. That's what we'll be looking at both today and every day in this series. Because it's important that we get this right. So let me acknowledge first and foremost the elephant in the room, which is this. At times in human history, in the history of the church of Jesus Christ, we have misused our power, we have misused our influence, we have not done Christian persuasion. We have done something else. But let me also acknowledge this, first and foremost, that as a human being, and I believe it's part of being created in the image of God, that I long to be moved. I long at the very basic level, I believe it's an innate desire within me to be moved towards something. And so I'm constantly searching in my life for things that move me. My favorite films are films that move me. My favorite books are books that move me. My favorite podcasts are podcasts that move me. My favorite stories that I hear from my grandparents or my parents or friends are stories that move me at the deepest level. My favorite people are people that move me. When I spend time with them, I'm moved. My favorite charities are those that move me when I hear about their mission in the world. Now, my favorite politicians, well, I don't really have <laughs> any favorite, but if I did, if I found somebody that really moved me, I would probably be really excited to vote for them. So you get my point, right? Do you agree with me that you're searching for things that move you? I believe human beings desire to be moved. I believe people living in the city of Seattle in 2016 desire to be moved and we're constantly looking for it. Something that moves me. Something that inspires me. And the things that move us, of course, are the things we give our attention to. The things that move us are the things that we give our attention to. So, if you would, let me make this claim. All people desire to be moved. Which is, I believe, to say, all people desire to be persuaded. Let's say that again. If all people desire to be moved, I think we can safely say all people desire to be persuaded. Being moved and being persuaded, I think, are the same thing. And most people living in our city today, probably most of us in the room, we have no problem with people speaking with passion and persuasion seeking to move us unless 
Those people are Christians trying to persuade us of the Christian understanding of the world, of morality, of purpose and goodness. Have you noticed that? seems like everybody else is free to move upon us, to move us emotionally, to move us intellectually, until Christians start to do it. You think this is true? And I believe this, what, this is probably what makes us averse when you hear me say Christian persuasion. Because probably you've been negatively impacted when you've tried to be persuasive. Talking about your faith. Talking about God. Or you've probably heard other people talk about those people who try to push their Christianity on them. And so when you hear Christian persuasion, the tendency is to cringe. Because you know how people in the city, at your work, in your family, think about those who speak persuasively about their Christian faith. As soon as you, think, uh, as soon as you start talking about the things of God, Seems like that rug is pulled out. And you're labeled intolerant, an exclusivist, narrow-minded. And so for the most part, I think we've stopped talking about the things of God with persuasiveness. Because it's a very um, normal thing. We want to be liked. And people don't like when Christians talk persuasively. And so... This is a serious problem. However, if in my conversational life I don't seek to move people, if in my conversational life, one, I don't seek to incorporate my faith, my understanding of God and His purpose and mission in the world, about redemption, grace, mercy, if I don't speak about those things, we'll see that we're probably falling short of something God's called us to. But if I do speak about those things, but I do not seek to move people, to persuade them of its truth, of its beauty, then, of course, they will not pay attention. Because people pay attention to the things that move them. And so if we simply speak about God and Jesus Christ and the Gospel with monotone motive, we will not earn the attention of those we're speaking with. So if you come to me and you tell me that you don't believe that communicating about the things of life that matter the most, about the things of God, the Gospel, and Jesus Christ, if you come to me and you say you don't need that, I'll tell you you're wrong. And then I'll say this. Then I'll say, if you don't think that's required, some mode or form of persuasiveness, then I'll say to you, then you must not care much if, if these people that you care about give it much attention. So let me state this sort of 
logically, and hopefully simply. The problem is this. People do not give their attention to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The vast majority of the people in our city do not give their attention to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The solution, the solution to that problem is Christians like me and like you speaking persuasively about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the bottleneck to that solution is that there is not enough Christians speaking persuasively about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the cause of that bottleneck is that certain elements in our society have successfully convinced most Christians that they do not have the right to speak about their faith persuasively. And the resolution to that cause of the bottleneck is this. Expose the lie and recover the lost art of Christian persuasion. That's the grand purpose and hope of this series is that we resolve the bottleneck and we begin to push back towards the solution to the problem, which is that most people don't give the Gospel of Jesus Christ the time of day. Now in the Gospels themselves, we actually see this happening. So, if you would, turn with me. Actually, I'm just going to read it to you. But if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. And I'll tell you to start finding your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. But in the Gospels, which is the first four books of the New Testament, and they're writing about the account, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see Jesus selecting 12 disciples who were His closest friends and partners in His mission. And after He selected them, Jesus sends them out into the neighboring towns and villages. And He tells them to go and have conversation with people. Conversation about the Kingdom of God, the good news that Jesus has come for their salvation. And His instruction to them as He sends them out goes something like this. Quote, Jesus says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. They will flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for My sake, to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for My name's sake." It's what Jesus told His disciples. That this would happen when they go and begin to have persuasive conversation about who He was, what He was doing, and about the coming of the Kingdom of God. And I don't believe the marching order has changed. 
He tells us, if we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus, to go and talk persuasively with friends, with strangers, about this coming kingdom, about Jesus and who He is. And He says, because you speak persuasively, because you speak as though it's true, people will hate you. He says, your brothers will hate you. He says, even father will turn over their child for what they are saying. You will be hated for my name's sake. So just make a note of this. Christian persuasion for the sake of the Gospel has always pissed people off. It's always rustled feathers. So there's nothing new under the sun. People do not like to be told you are a sinner in need of grace and Jesus Christ is that grace. Nobody likes to hear that. Because, as they say, the truth hurts. And probably the most powerful, instinctive human reaction is to avoid pain. And the truth hurts. People do not want to hear that they are not good enough or they cannot fix themselves, that they need the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so it has always turned people against Christians the world over when they speak persuasively about the Gospel. Now, I want you to look uh, particularly at this first verse that I read, uh, which says this. Jesus sends them out. He says, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think this little phrase, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, will give us some hints at to what is so unique about Christian persuasion. Okay? So I'm going to break that phrase down into two parts. Persuasion and Christian. Because of course you can be persuasive about a lot of things, but it doesn't mean it's Christian persuasion. So that's where we're headed, okay? So uh, let's start with persuasion. What does it mean to be wise like a serpent? Well, it probably means exactly what you think it means when you hear it, to be a wise as a serpent. It means be wise. <laughs> be crafty. Be creative. Let me give you an illustration. Went to a wedding last night. My wife got ready. And my wife is beautiful. She is beautiful. And she comes to me and she says, how do I look? There is a way to respond that is wise like a serpent. And there is a way to respond that is not wise like a serpent. Here's the way not to respond. If you're married, if you ever want to get married, if you're having trouble getting married, you really want to pay attention because you might be getting this wrong. When she asked me, how do I look? She's beautiful. I know she's beautiful. I didn't make her beautiful. She's just that way. But the way I talk about it can either get me in trouble or it cannot get me in trouble. There's really, I can't really gain anything in this scenario, but I can lose much. So, if I were to say about her, if I were to just state the facts simply like a textbook, you know, and say things like, well, your hair is very long and shiny, and your dress is pink, 
and your jewelry sparkles. You know what she'd say to me? That's all you got? Now, that would not be very wise or persuasive. I did not do that. Well, I don't know. You can ask her after the service. But um, I would speak with full color about the beauty of my wife. She's like a doe that pants by the water. You look like that. Where is she? Wow, I can barely see you. But your beauty radiates, even, even though you're blocked. Yeah. Right? So I can speak persuasive. Now, it doesn't change what she is. She is beautiful. But I can either speak unwisely about it, or I can speak persuasively as a serpent would. Now, don't think negatively about a serpent. The point here is not to, to, to take your mind back to the Garden of Eden. That's not the kind of serpentry we're talking about. We speak the truth. So that brings me to the next part of Christian persuasion, which is the Christian piece. The Christian piece of persuasion, which is to say, be innocent as doves. Right? So the word innocent literally means unmixed. Unmixed. Which is referring back to the purity of your intention. So when you are seeking seeking to speak with Christian persuasion, you want to make sure that your motives are unmixed. That you are doing it truly for the good of the other. You're not grandstanding. You're not just trying to win an argument. You're not just trying to make yourself look good. You, your motives are pure. You want people to come to see Jesus for who He is, the truths of God, the beauty truly of the Gospel. So you want unmixed motives. That's part of Christian persuasion. You also... Uh, Innocent of that, you, you don't want to lie. You do not want to lie in order to be persuasive. Then it is not Christian persuasion. You must be utterly honest. And this includes both implicit and explicit lying. We need to be true and fair. And if in conversation we do not know, or we ourselves are confused, you know what we should say? I don't know. Or that confuses me too. Do not lie. Be innocent as doves. Innocent also, I believe, means no salesmanship. Christian persuasion is not salesmanship. You know, sometimes we steal from, the church will steal from sort of the the newest sales technique when it comes to the Gospel. I do not believe this is what Jesus is asking us to do. We're not selling a product. We're speaking about a person. The personal God. His Son, Jesus Christ. We're not selling people a product, which is Christianity. So it's not the art of sales, Christian persuasion. So don't try to fit this into some technique or definitely don't be like a used car salesman. We are battling for truth. We are speaking about glory. We are hoping to win people into eternal salvation. 
And so this isn't a matter of who has the best sales training program or who has the best sales technique. It's so much more than that. It's so much richer than that, this art of Christian persuasion. It also means, being Christian persuasion, that there is no coercion. So I I mentioned it up front. Lots of times the church has gotten this wrong. And we have used uh, coercion and not persuasion in seeking to get people to believe the truth of Christianity. And coercion is this. Persuasion by force or threat of force. So making somebody do something they do not want to do out of fear or out of preservation, that is not Christian persuasion. Jesus never calls us to that. He never calls us to coercion. And like I said, throughout the history of Christianity, we must admit, we must own it, we must apologize for any time that we've used coercion rather than persuasion. But they are not the same thing. Finally, what makes this kind of persuasion Christian persuasion is that it is full of the Spirit of God. So let me take you back into the text. Um, Let me read it for you again. After He's told them to go to be wise as serpent, innocent as doves, He says this, They will deliver you over to the authorities to imprison you, to beat you, and even to kill you. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you will say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of God, the Spirit of your Father, speaking through you. This is what makes it uniquely Christian persuasion. That it is not our own words, but it is the Spirit of God that empowers us to speak truth and to speak it well and to speak it wisely. And that is so key. Now you'll meet people that are speaking about Christian truths, but that are not speaking... You might say, man, this seems a little coercive. Or... This just doesn't seem right. And, you, and it might be because they are not speaking in the power of the Spirit. It is only Christian persuasion, persuasion when you are speaking in the power of the Spirit of God. And so when you enter a conversation, pray that the Spirit would give you words to say. And here's the deal. Do you think the Spirit of God can speak about the other persons of the Trinity, Father God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, without seeking to move you? Do you think the Spirit of God would speak about Father and Son without passion? Without pure motivation? So seek to converse with the world in the power of the Spirit. Um, One of my professors in seminary said this about this uh, phrase, wise as serpent, innocent as doves. He said this, Shrewdness and integrity form the crucial combination not often found in the Christian church. In fact, 
we most often invert the two, proving to be as guilty as serpents and as stupid as doves. Let's not be that here at Sedaris. Let's not invert the commands of Jesus. Let's not be guilty as serpents and stupid like doves. We must be innocent and we must be wise. Okay, second phrase I want to look at. We have lost, have lost. This is important to understand because you might be thinking to yourself, is this really that important to my Christian faith? And the answer is yeah. You might not realize it because it's been lost for some time now. We have lost it. But being persuasive has always been a part of being a Christian. It's always been the key that has moved the Gospel forward. We see that in Matthew 10, which we just read. And we see it over and over and over again in the Scriptures. It's always been this way. It's always been the responsibility of Christians to speak about God and to do so persuasively. I mean, think about this. Do you think that we would be sitting in this room if people had not spoken about the Christian truth persuasively? Jesus was not some military figure. He was not some political figure. He was a carpenter from this podunk town called Nazareth. And his only weapon was that he spoke with the power of God and he spoke persuasively. And he taught his disciples to speak persuasively. And somehow, even after he died, without using military force, without having any political power, this Jesus movement moved. Why is that? Because they spoke persuasively about the things of God. you got to think about that. How we got to this point. So, we've lost it. In my opinion, we've lost this in American Christianity in 2016. And we must regain it. And whom is charged with this? task of regaining. So this is the next word I want to look at. We have lost and we must recover. Not me, not pastors, not evangelists, not the Pope. We. If you're there now, 1 Peter 3.15 and this uh, passage is in your bulletin as well. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. And if you understand the context, who is Peter addressing when he writes this letter? He's addressing the entire congregation. And through proxy, the entire populace of all Christians at all times, 
We must always, all of us, be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in us. We must defend God's honor. And we must defend it persuasively. We are painting a picture, all of us, we are painting a picture of who God is and the way we talk about Him. And so if we speak with dull, colorless utensils, we're going to paint a dull, colorless picture of who God is. There's no diploma required to defend God. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to grow up in the church. Everyone is called to defend Him. So look with me at the context of this verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. He says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I want to point out a couple of things here very quickly. He says this. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. To defend Jesus Christ through the art of Christian persuasion is ultimately more than just a command it's a matter of the heart. And if you fail to defend Jesus when someone either slanders His name or you fail to give a reason for the hope that, was in, that is in you, you are ultimately turning off your heart to God. Because it's a matter of the heart. It is from the heart that we speak. It is from our heart that we honor Christ. It's not just the words that we say, but it's the motivation of our heart to want to defend Christ, to want to paint a picture for the world to see. So it's just an important phrase there. In your hearts, honor Christ. And the way you do that is being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We all have this responsibility. We've all lost this art. And we all must recover it. And we're responsible for recovering it to anyone who asks us about the hope that they see in us. To anyone who asks, Peter says. My boss, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my parents, my teachers a reporter. And what are we looking for when they ask? 
when they ask us about our hope. And so this can come in many forms. Some of us will say, well, if they would ask me specifically about the Gospel of Jesus, or they'd ask me specifically about some doctrine of God, then I'd share with them. That's not what Peter says. He says, when they bring up hope, and this can come in many ways. Maybe they just ask you, why are you happy all the time? Or maybe this means, man, how are you still making it through the day after everything that's happened in your life? And you'll feel it. (laughs) You'll say, I feel like this is an open door to maybe share the reason for my hope and that it's more than just some cliche. But I'll tell you, more often than not, my tendency is when I see that door open and somebody asks me about hope, and there's so many ways they can ask me about hope, my tendency is to give some cookie-cutter cliche. I'll say things like, well, you know, the reason I have hope even in these dire situations, is I know that all good things come to an end. And this is just one of them. Or I'll say things like, well, I can only control what I can control. So I let the rest go. And please don't use song lyrics, because that's my tendency as well. Well, you don't always get what you want. But if you try, (laughs) no. You get what you need. If the hope that's within you is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the hope of the resurrection, if it's knowing that there's a God who is in control and that I can't always understand what He's doing, and sometimes it seems like, what what is going on here? But I know and I trust Him because He's proven Himself. Then I've got to share that. And I've got to share it persuasively if I believe that it's true with anyone who asks me about my hope. Next little phrase here. The art. The art. This is an art. This is not a science. Like I said, this is not a technique. This is an art. And art always affects the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. People do not want to hear because their hearts are turned away from the Gospel. And so, if we want to reach the heart, if we want to turn the heart to see the beauty of God, the beauty of the Gospel, we must be artful. We must converse from our heart to the heart of the other person. And so in this way, Christian persuasion is soulful. It's soulful. So our conversations cannot be cookie cutter. Our conversations can never go the same twice. This is why it's like good jazz. We're playing off of the other person in the conversation because it's an art. Because no two people are the same. Please do not fail to appreciate human diversity. People are starting from different places, and so we start in different places. People are wrestling with different things, so we'll paint slightly, we'll focus on different parts of the picture of God. But then we also must recognize that the human heart is wily. (laughs) 
It doesn't want to address Jesus for who He is. And so we must be artful to avoid the pitfalls that come in conversation that take us off track. It's an art. You see this? It's an art. And we must be engaged at the soul level, not just at the head level. Because if we're just engaged at the, at the head level, we will not be successful in painting this picture that God calls us to paint. So in this way, we are all artists. You say, but I'm an engineer. I'm an accountant. I don't care. In this part of your life, you are called to be an artist. We are all called to be Janelle's. That's right. Janelle was the one up here giving the announcements. She is artful. We are called to be Janelle's. So she'll be giving a tutorial after this on how to be artful. All you engineers in the room, I know there's many of you, please see her after the service. Thank you. We can do this. We can all be artful in the way we talk about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll get more into that as we go through this series. We'll talk a lot about what does it mean and how do we be artful. So we must recover it. It can be done. Oz Guinness in his book says this, Seize this opportunity with bold and imaginative enterprise. We have lost it. We have lost this art. But it can be recovered and it starts by us, you and I, beginning to learn to be artful, beginning to learn to speak again about the things of God with persuasion to move people to see the beauty of the Gospel and then teaching somebody else how to be artful. That's how it goes. That's the way the cookie crumbles. So, you know what? I'm going to stop. Going to have to come back to get the first key to Christian persuasion, which is becoming a fool for Christ. See that tease? Got to come back. This is really good stuff. Becoming a fool for Christ. It's the first key to persuasion. So, I hope you're excited about this. I hope you're excited about learning to have better conversations. And just trust me. I was, for so much of my life, I never learned to talk about these things because I never wanted people to dislike me because I spoke persuasively about my Christian faith. But what I've come to realize, the more and more I've talked about it, that there will be people that will be turned off when you begin to speak, when you begin to speak persuasively. But there will be other people that for the first time in their life say, I'm so glad somebody's talking about these sorts of things. And I'm glad that you care about them. That you're not speaking about them like some academic subject. I've been waiting for somebody to talk to me. Now, they might not agree with you. They might say, I'm not at the same place, but I'm just glad that we're finally talking about this stuff. And this stuff is of the ultimate concern, and so we should speak about it. Thank you for caring enough about me to bring this stuff up. Thank you. You will have that experience too. If we recover the lost art of Christian persuasion. 
It's got to start somewhere. I hope it starts with us. Would you pray with me and ask God to give us boldness and courage? Father, we want, we want to be like Jesus. We want to understand how it is to talk about You in such a way that we bring glory to Your name. God, give us insight. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Give us people around us to support us as we practice together speaking persuasively about Your truth, about Your kingdom, about Your gospel of redemptive grace. God, we want our lives and our words to paint a picture of You that is accurate, that is true, and is therefore the most beautiful thing in the world. Help us to do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.